This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, East Sanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hszc.org. So, good morning, everybody. Good to be back with you and, and uh, in a new month. And uh, <clears throat> I want to talk today about um, what it means for me or for you, for any of us to be a bodhisattva, to to live by vow. And, you know, I was here uh, earlier this month and talked about a couple of the paramitas, and so mixing some of that, but moving on from hopefully where we were last time. But <coughs> part of what's <coughs> led me to be thinking about this is that our abbot is having an anniversary today. Is it 33 or 36, Mia? 33. 33 years of of living his life for the benefit of all of us and, and our Sangha and communities. And I was just thinking about that, thinking what an awesome um, gift that is to all of us and, and how much he has given and, and others like him in 33 years. And how, <clears throat> as I was reading about it and thinking about it, <clears throat> how I could never um, live up to that and, and you know what an awesome thing it was. And I was talking about that with someone last night who said, how long have you been practicing? And I said, oh. 28 years, um, but, but a different practice. And so it, it, it just reminded me that I can and do respect tremendously um, what the abbot, who he is and how he teaches and what he's given. Um, and it can almost be a way for, for me or others not to fully engage in living the Bodhisattva vow if we look at um, only those who have done it in a certain way with a certain diligence and compassion. Um, and so it's, it's uh, experiencing a, a wonderful celebration and remembrance with, with Mio today. Um, also gives us the opportunity to say, and we each, the Bodhisattva vow is individual and we each walk it. Um, and so I, I think <clears throat> part of it for me is I've been studying, as I mentioned to you, in our meditation and recovery group on Monday night, We've been taking a look at the paramitas, and and like most lists um, that you've probably seen, there are six paramitas that routinely get studied and so forth. Um, and then Norman Fisher has put out a wonderful new book called The World Could Be Otherwise, and some of you may have listened to his podcast. He spoke last week at San Francisco Zen Center and then offered a workshop in the afternoon. Um, and Rami and I went to the workshop, and I like the book a lot. That'll be all I say about that workshop. Um, but I'll tell you about it over, over coffee and tea, or tea and cookies if you want later. Um, but the book is entitled The World Could Be Otherwise. And the beauty of the book, as I think I mentioned the last time, is, is that what um, Norman says is that the world is what the world is. Um, there's suffering and there's confusion and there's greed, hate, and delusion. <clears throat> and for us who have decided to lead walk the Buddha's path or lead lives as bodhisattvas, we have to somehow use our imagination and creativity to view that the world could be otherwise. Um, And so if we just go with, and Leanne was wonderful last week, she said the Buddha came to teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. And she laughed as everybody does when they say that. It's like, for most of us, that sounds like two things. Um, But I think, as she pointed out, the actual teaching of the Buddha is that you know, there's the, 
that you can't have suffering without an end to suffering, and you for sure can't have an end to suffering without suffering. So it's like so many things in life, it's non-dual. They both exist all the time for all of us. <clears throat> and so and so that's um, part of what I've been thinking about a lot, and the folks in, in the meditation recovery group have been concentrating on for the last eight weeks. So um, what is it that the paramitas allow us to do? And I think that we know that they are basically a description of how a bodhisattva um, would live, right? A description of how you prepare your mind to arouse um, bodhicitta, basically. Um, so I think, I know I mentioned last time, but I'm really enamored also of a guy named Ben Conley who has a new book out called uh, Mindfulness and Intimacy. And Ben says that the way he works with his students and the way he's gotten to this is that he has a shorthand version of the Four Noble Truths. And his shorthand version is, there is suffering in the world, um, <clears throat> and you can do something about it. Um, or as I've been using it with students I work with, you must do something about it. That seems to me to be the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva path, is that there is suffering in the world. We see that and experience it. In fact, we cause some of it um, for ourselves and others. And But our call and our opportunity is to... Um, to really have have an impact on the suffering in the world. So, um, one of the things that is enlightening for me and, and um, is that there are actually in some lists <clears throat> ten uh, paramitas, ten practices of perfection. And you know, the perfection is a verb. We're trying to perfect our um, our thoughts, minds, our thoughts, words, and deeds in, in certain areas. Um, but what was fascinating to me was the, the historical piece when I started looking into this and thinking about it, which is in the, in the ancient, in my understanding, in the ancient Buddhist text, there were six paramitas. And like many of the original teachings, they were taught for monks and very senior students, uh, monastics, almost most, much of the time. But when the Mahayana scriptures came up and the Mahayana practice began to um, become something, uh, there was a new teaching, and the new teaching sort of decentered the Buddha as the central um, person who we should watch and emulate and 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 follow precisely, um, and instead made the life of the Buddha and the teachings of the Buddha um, a motivation and an, uh, a light for us in terms of how we should live. And the difference in Mahayana, as you all know, um, is this idea of the Bodhisattva. So we become centered, and it's our opportunity, our call, our gift of being able to be engaged in ending suffering and to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings that suddenly becomes central. And so that's why um, I know that I was originally attracted to Buddhism because of that, what I feel like is a social justice um, component, um, that yes, we are all working towards liberation, enlightenment, nirvana, um, but that we as, as practitioners in Soto Zen and in the Mahayana traditions are not trying to get there by ourselves, so not trying to get there um, on our own. And that's not to disparage other lineages that do that, because in the other lineages there's a sense that if you get there, that example would lead other people to get there. So it's a slightly um, different point of view, um, but the idea is in Buddhism is always to help other sentient beings. It's just that for us, um, we do it in collaboration and in, in uh, context and not, um, 
and not um, on our own. So um, I think what, what is wonderful about this to me is that um, in these Mahayana teachings, <coughs> we um, get to recast those Four Noble Truths. So instead of dissatisfaction and suffering being um, the central um, component, um, we get to think of suffering uh, as a new and noble place um, at the very heart of the Buddhist path. So what makes suffering painful is that we identify it as mine. That's primarily what makes our suffering and dissatisfaction, because we think it's ours. But in the Mahayana traditions, in fact, the suffering I experience is not mine. The suffering I experience is common human suffering, and we all um, are in this together. And the understanding that loss and pain connect us all, um, and, and that suffering ends when we are all connected, um, enables us to fully, as I see it, um, expand this radical identity that's not mine, but ours, that interconnectedness that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about. So, experiencing um, suffering like this, that we all are suffering and we all feel dissatisfaction and we all experience loss, and <clears throat> as bodhisattvas, people who are, are committed to living and being lived for all other beings, we're all in this together. And the suffering takes on some context, and the suffering, hopefully, um, and in many cases, takes on some hope that, you know, the sort of 12-step <coughs> programs are actually built on people going there and talking about their journey to recovery as we talk about our journey to liberation. And it's in hearing people talk about it <clears throat> that we can move from, this is overwhelming, and I don't know if I can do this, to a place of saying, wow, it feels overwhelming, but he did it, and so maybe if I listen and learn and work together, um, I can figure it out, and she did it, and so that there's hope that we can learn from each other and teach each other how to do this, diminishing and managing and contextualizing suffering, and it suddenly becomes Sangha. It becomes a, a legion of bodhisattvas, each holding the suffering and each teaching the other how to, how to um, uh, reduce the suffering. Bernie Glassman, who recently passed away, I think I might have said this last time, but it's worth repeating, um, who was the founder of the Zen Peacemakers, says our practice is to see the oneness of life, to truly experience our, our body, our unity, and our balance, to fully appreciate and nurture one another. That is the practice of Zazen. That is peacemaking, he says. And that really um, resonates with me. So. These, uh, the paramitas that, that you normally um, study, and for anybody who's new, we'll just say that the six of them that we think about are the paramita or the perfection of generosity, um, the perfection of ethical conduct, sila, um, the perfection of patience, um, the perfection <coughs> of energy, which Norman describes in his book, and I talked about last time, as the perfection of joyful effort, um, the perfection of meditation, which is the core practice of Soto Zen, and the perfection of wisdom, which is often described as the perfection of understanding. <clears throat> and in my way of working with that and teaching it and understanding it and learning from all of you is that that's what it is, the perfection of wisdom, the verb to, to, um, to do better at wisdom, really works better for me if I say understanding, so that I begin to realize and to fully embody that I can learn from each and every one of you. If you've been here for 33 years, 
or if you came today for the first time, you have powerful lessons that together uh, we can learn and teach each other. And that working towards understanding, working towards that that is wisdom, is collective and not individual. That like suffering is not mine, neither is wisdom mine. And that becomes a background for um, the practice that we lead. The four that, uh, paramitas that were added in the Mahayana scriptures um, are the uh, perfection of skillful means, which I talked a little bit about last time, I think. Um, the perfection of vow, which we're going to talk about today. The perfection of loving kindness and metta, which I think is really important. And the perfection of knowledge, which is um, about, I think, my understanding, about studying and having deep respect for the sutras and the teachings and the teachers who have um, been at this for a long time. So one of the things that we know about um, those <coughs> those teachings, the, the additional form, uh, is that, as I said in the historical text, text, often the teachings were for monks and monastics and long-time practitioners. In Mahayana, they're for everybody. The teachings are for everybody. So those additional four seem to me to be instructions on how to live once we have decided to walk the path of the Buddha and once we have decided to come into this lineage and live as bodhisattva. Um, not for me, but for the benefit of all beings. So I think the, f the first place that you read about this, and, and I often mispronounce these, so bear with me, but Avatamsaka, Avatamsaka, um, which is uh, known in English as the Flower Ornament Sutra. And this is a really wonderful teaching. Um, and in my reading of it, um, what I like is, is that it really um, makes the teachings of the Buddha accessible to everybody that was listening. Um, and that it's, it's taught in a way that's beautiful and poetic and engaging so that people really want to um, find out um, how they can practice with skillful means and how they can practice with loving kindness. And if you want to find that out, um, it's listed there. So the skillful means um, that we talked about last time um, really is that, um, it, that the Dharma is taught not by texts and words alone, certainly by texts and teachers teaching, um, but not by that alone. It's taught by our living the Bodhisattva life. So if we um, engage that way, um, and if we decide that we can do something about the suffering in the world, um, then, then there's this opportunity um, for us to move forward in that way. I want to share with you a little something that Uchiyama Rochi said. A bodhisattva is an ordinary person who takes up the course of his or her life <clears throat> that moves in the direction of the Buddha. You're a bodhisattva. I'm a bodhisattva. Actually, anyone who directs their attention, their life, to practicing the way of life of the Buddha is a bodhisattva. We read about um, Avalokiteshvara bodhisattva or Manjushri bodhisattva, and these are great bodhisattvas. But we, too, have the confidence and faith that we are also bodhisattvas. So what he says is really important that, that suddenly in that paragraph, if you let yourself think about that for a minute, he's just said that uh, you know, Manjushri and me, the title of my new autobiography, Manjushri and me, um, that we, if we make that decision to really understand and to really practice skillfully our bodhisattva vows, our, our bodhisattva life, um, that we in fact are um, teachers and practitioners like the great bodhisattvas. And then he goes on to say that most people live by their desires or their karma. 
that's what the expression, uh, this expression that he uses, which I will probably also mispronounce, gasho no bampu. And he says what that means is that those are obstructions to the practice of the way, caused by our actions of the past. Um, and that then there's another expression, uh, sabapu simply means the ordinary human being. So that's important. So it's this idea that our actions um, have consequences, cause and effect. The seeds of karma come into fruition. Um, but what he says is that we sometimes think of ourselves, and you know, negative self-talk, and, and for some of us, the way we were raised or the way we interact with society, um, that we are bad or broken or evil. And what he says is if you really break down that expression, um, it really means simply ordinary human being. That is one who lives in karma, with karma, and, and we all do, right? So our actions, um, in fact, are dictated by karma. And so, so that's part of it. But then he says that there's another expression, um, which is gansho no bosatsu. Um, and what he says is that that simply means a person who decides and commits to live by vow. So rather than live simply by karma, cause and effect, things happened, um, and if this happens, then that happens. That's, that's sort of basic laws of life. Uh, but he says that there's this other way of living, which is to decide to live by vow, which is not to deny karma and not to deny cause and effect, and certainly not to deny suffering and dis-ease um, or confusion in life, uh, but it's to acknowledge all of those things and to say, and together um, we can work to make life less um, uncomfortable and less chaotic and more filled with loving kindness. So um, if we're all in this room bodhisattvas, we have a responsibility um, and, a, and a privilege actually um, to mentor others, to mentor each other in this room and to mentor, mentor others in our, in our jobs and our workplaces and so forth. Um, Pat um, in, in, in Keo O'Hara in New York says, it may be easy to live our lives, have our practice be for the benefit of others when they are people that we like or that we know or that we would like to be connected with. The challenge, she says, is to practice that with people simply we would not like to be connected with or we think we wouldn't like to be connected with because we've sort of watched them and think, mm, not, not me. Or we've known them and have decided we don't want to be connected with them anymore, just really don't like them. That happens, right? We have, we have those feelings. Um, but what she says is that that's where the real practice opportunity comes. You know, when things in the world are chaotic and overwhelming, we say, hmm, I'm going to continue to practice. I'm going to continue to show up in life. <clears throat> and the same, this good practice of having people that we like, that we're not quite so sure, um, that we're pretty sure we don't want them around us, and that we know that for safety's sake we have to keep them at arm's or further length away. Uh, and that the practice is to how to be in the world with all of those people, all of those types of relationships and to practice um, Buddhism, to practice the Bodhisattva vow. Um, so how do we, in a sense, turn down the volume on that need to distance ourselves from other people? And our own Blanche Hartman um, said wonderfully that it takes a good enemy to have a good practice. That that's, you know, easy to practice with friends, but if you really want to have a good practice, figure out how to practice as a Buddhist, as a Bodhisattva, with an enemy. And so, um, so that's important, I think. Um, so one of the things that I've always um, taken to heart and 
I have little cards that I keep around my, my altars at home, um, is a teaching of the Buddha that when he was, on the day before his enlightenment, he was sitting under the tree, and as you all know the story, Mara shows up and offers all sorts of temptations and interruptions and distractions to the Buddhist practice. And famously, the Buddha does not turn away, um, does not um, magically have Mara disappear into the realms of hell, um, doesn't ignore Mara, but says to Mara, I see you, I see you. Which, the way I understand that teaching is that you are there, those temptations are there, those distractions are there, and I'm here, and so I see you. And we're, we're in this particular place together, and what that allows is that I'm going to move forward towards my path of liberation, and you'll be right there, and um, I will see you again as life goes on. Um, and when I see you, um, the same will be true. I will be practicing my practice and holding you um, with as much compassion and um, wise, wise action as I can. So, uh, Uchiyama also says that there is an expression um, which uh, in Japanese, Issei Shujo to, Tomo Ni. And in English, what that means is together with all sentient beings, regardless of what hell one might fall into. So this was an interesting teaching to me because what he says, what this teaching is about, is that we've all been taught and studied and taken the precepts, or it will at some point, or we'll study them, learn about them if you haven't yet. But the precepts are in fact the guide to how a bodhisattva, a student of the Buddha, would live. And what um, Roshi, Uchimara Roshi says is that it's not enough for a bodhisattva of the Mahayana tradition to just uphold the precepts. There are times when you must break them. It's just that when you do this, you have to know that, there will, that you have to resolve to be willing to live with whatever consequences might come up. And so when I first read that and, and been talking to people about it, it's like, hmm. So this great teacher is telling us that we have these precepts, um, but that we shouldn't get stuck just in following the precepts, that there are times when we might have to break a precept or bend a precept for the benefit of other beings. And I was challenged by that, and sort of still am, and I'd be interested to hear when we have a conversation how you feel about it. But I have never been good at um, negotiating rules. Um, one of the reasons I'm successfully a person in recovery is that there's no negotiating. Here's, here's, here's how it works. And you just, if you don't want to um, die of alcoholism and drug addiction, here's what you do. And so I learned over the years that I've been in, in those programs to do what the rules say. I'm not so good if somebody were to say, well, you might want to occasionally have a glass of wine with dinner, or you might want to, you know, special occasions, have some champagne or something like that. Um, but that's a decision you'll make personally for yourself. Um, and I know in my experience of working with others in those programs and, and my own nature, that if I had the capacity to, um, to negotiate that, everything would become a special occasion. It's Saturday afternoon, let's have some champagne. It's Sunday morning, let's, then the sun is up, let's have some champagne. So I, don't, I haven't done well in my life um, with that capacity to negotiate. And so one of the reasons that um, I'm uh, uh, engaged in Buddhism is because there's lots of, of things that I'm told will make life um, less chaotic and there'll be less suffering. And so those things are the things I should do. But I do understand <clears throat> that we have 
in all of our traditions and in most of our aspects of our life, there are people who are so adherent to the rules <clears throat> that they sort of forget the humanness. So they're not able to balance that with the humanness required um, to help somebody who's maybe trying to live the precepts but isn't, isn't um, you know, still finds themselves occasionally um, disparaging others in the Sangha or something like that. And so instead of being kind and compassionate, allowing that person's space to grow and to feel more love and, and to feel connected, um, uh, the person says, well, here are the ways we have to live, and you can't do that. Uh, and so I think this is this wonderful opportunity in this teaching um, to let go of, of my perceptions of what it ought to be and to know that I have read the rules and I do try to live by the rules and that sometimes if I'm living for the benefit of all beings, there has to be some interpretation. There has to be some bend. Um, and then the reason I work with the teacher uh, and, and practice in places like this one as often as possible is so that we hear from our respected um, teachers and abbots uh, how we can manage that so that it's not um, the opposite of following all those rules and this idea of Uchiyama Roshis that sometimes in the interest of other beings you have to be willing to break the rules, um, break one of the precepts. Um, it's like I would only ever consider doing that myself after discussion and guidance with, with uh, an abbot or a, one of my teachers or, or colleagues um, such as yourselves. Um, and so for me, <clears throat> that becomes just another practice opportunity, right? Because after a few years of practicing or a little while of practicing, following all those rules can be pretty, pretty, pretty tight. You know, I can do that, march straight down the path and end up wherever it is I'm supposed to end up. Uh, but the fact is when other human beings get involved and you're in relationship with them as people in the Sangha, as family members, as uh, romantic and family um, uh, relationships, etc., um, we find that it's not quite so easy. Um, people are at different places if they're studying Buddhism um, or interested in Buddhism, um, <coughs> if they're interested in mindfulness, if they're interested in the spiritual practice of some other kind, everybody has their own interpretation and their own way of living um, those experiences. And so it comes to reason that I need to allow space for that, um, both as the way that they're living right now um, and as a way of living that can inform me and enhance my own spiritual practice if I have right understanding that my way is not the right way or the only way and their way is not the right way or the only way. Um, I think a lot of us grew up in, in families where we weren't nurtured to learn and to experiment and grow. Um, in in my, my family in the 50s, if you didn't do something the way of the family, first you were bad, and then if you really didn't cooperate, you were stupid, and then if that didn't seem to be working, you were an embarrassment to the family and an embarrassment to your church. <laughs> By the time they got done sharing all that, um, you were, I was basically, and other siblings, <laughs> basically locked down and stuck in whatever it was um, that I thought I was doing that, that was just kid behavior. That was just me trying to be um, an energetic and enthusiastic and, and a normal kid. And so one of the things about our practice is that, that we don't just practice here. We don't just practice um, sitting on the cushions of these chairs. Um, we, we practice everywhere that we are. And so there's talk in American Buddhism about something that's called Marketplace Zen. And one of the readings that I looked at um, a couple weeks ago says that our talents are not rejected, 
but are utilized as part of the learning process, part of our Zen practice. A bodhisattva may teach the Dharma in the form of intellectual understanding, in the form of artistic understanding, even in the form of business understanding. They may teach as an employee, as a boss, as a volunteer, and as a neighbor. So that in all of those activities, we are fully living the Dharma. So we're not asked to abandon everything in order to live the Bodhisattva life. In fact, what our Buddhist practice teaches us, and the reason we sit on those cushions, is that we are in, or this chair, these chairs, is that we're asked to engage with everything, to bring every single aspect of our lives to practice because every aspect is practice. So um, it, this all sounds like it could be easy, like, okay, so there's no strict rules and everything is practiced, and so now I'm all set because you know, I just get up from here and I say to my friends and my teachers, everything is practiced and I'm doing everything, so we're cool. Um, and Uchiyama Roshi has a wonderful section in his book that I'll read you a little bit of because you may recognize somebody here. But the section is entitled Idiot Compassion. And so I don't know if you recognize anybody, but I was shaving in the mirror when I was listening to this on tape. I was looking in the mirror listening to Idiot Compassion. It was a powerful teaching and metaphor. Um, so he says it's important um, to, to identify and avoid idiot compassion. Think of it this way. If one handles fire, wrongly he gets burnt. If one rides a horse badly, he gets thrown. But these things, fire and horses, um, if we treat them correctly and with respect, are good for us and helpful to us. So he says, what is idiot compassion? If we do our work intelligently with other um, sentient beings, quite possibly our help will become addictive to them rather than beneficial. People, like us, um, become addicted to our help in the same way um, that they become addicted to a medication or a pill. By trying to get more and more help, they become weaker and weaker themselves. And so our job um, is to understand that oftentimes when someone asks us a question or asks us for guidance, one of the possibilities that's a powerful gift is to say nothing, to simply be present with the person. Most of us have that desire in our lives to be the fixers, that I can help you correct that, or I have an answer for that, um, even if we don't. And we can sometimes hear that happening in our head. It's like, I don't really know the answer to that, but let me give you my best thinking on that right now. And what I've been practicing with lately is anytime I hear that thought in my head, I don't really have an answer, but let me give you my best thinking. Um, it's a good time to stop, take a couple of deep breaths, right? And to say, hmm, I don't really know, but let's talk about it for a minute. Maybe we can share something with each other, or let's go away and study it and come back and talk later. But the idea that I must immediately respond or react to any question that's asked or any situation that comes up um, is, is um, not, a, not one that I want to live with and one that I've been practicing with. And so, um, so I think uh, one of the gifts that we have um, is that there are so many valid and beautiful ways to be a bodhisattva. We each have our strengths that we bring, and we each have challenges that we bring. We each have our suffering that we bring, and we've each found a way to diminish or eliminate suffering in parts of our lives and our walk. Um, and we've each found ways, hopefully, um, to learn from others in our life and to teach others, and to know that that learning is not dualistic. If I learn um, from you, whatever you just taught me, you learn that, ah, that teaching, that, that truth um, is now 
um, relational and effective because somebody else just learned it. So um, some may be called to bring their wisdom and compassion um, right now in 2019 to the fight to bring our government um, back to decency and justice. Some people, the bodhisattva path is that, that this world is overwhelming and that what's going on in our government is causing such deep pain and deep harm um, to people today and in the future um, that they bring themselves as a reasonable bodhisattva path to engaging in making change and, <clears throat> and bringing a different kind of government or in some cases the downfall of the one we have now. And that works for some people. Some people are able to do that um, and maintain equanimity and maintain a sense of compassion and wisdom. And so that's wonderful. But for others, um, and includes some of us, um, those endeavors um, to do something about what's going on in Washington or, or the world, um, they can feel too distant, um, they can feel overwhelming, um, and they can feel hopeless, frankly. And so that's not good or bad. It's just when you think about getting involved in one of those things, it's not a cop-out to say, I can't do that right now. The pain of getting involved in something that hopeless or overwhelming um, would not leave me in a place to practice on the Buddhist path, would not leave me in a place of compassion and wisdom for the other people in my sangha and my family and my community. And so for me, um, or those people, and sometimes it's me, um, there's not one way to do this. Um, there's not one way to engage bodhisattva life or the Buddhist path. There are many ways, and it includes big ways and personal ways um, in the places that we live. So one of the teachings there is that um, we might think as um, engaged Buddhists or social justice advocates or decent human beings that we must be evolved in the national stuff because it's so compelling. Um, and so we may think that we should be those kind of people, that that's who a Buddhist would be. But here's a teaching that says, letting go of who you think you are supposed to be and truly accepting who you are is one of the greatest and most valuable gifts you will ever give yourself. So um, how do we practice that on a, on a uh, local basis, on a, on a basis in our lives, in our sangha? Um, we practice it. Um, there's a teaching that comes from a guidebook for caring for your Buddhist community that says, and you probably, many of you might have heard this before, but I, I love this particular teaching. A wise person um, knows that we gain our freedom working skillfully um, within the conditions of our life. A noble person acts with integrity, and an even more noble person um, uh, helps others to act with integrity. A noble person acts with integrity, and an even more noble person um, helps others act with integrity. And so, how do we do that then? How do we take a look at our Buddhist practice um, and bring to our bodhisattva life, our life in community, our life in family, our life in sangha, um, the, that practice? How do we walk everywhere with that practice? And at the workshop last week, we worked with this idea. And um, so it's Norman instructed us, and encouraged us to know what your practice is. And so um, here's, here's what mine is, and, and you're allowed to to claim it or revise it or dismiss it, it's up to you. Um, but I do know that I have a Buddhist practice and my practice on a daily basis is this, every day I meditate. Every day I meditate, that's important to me to get centered in who I am. And I try to do it at a consistent time or times on a good day, twice. 
Uh, but every day I meditate because if I'm not centered in the reality of my life and life, then I can't uh, be of any use to anybody. Every day, um, this one, I, I am taking Norman's words because they're true for me as well. Every day, he says, every day I pray. And I say every day I practice metta or loving kindness, which is my version of prayer, so the words are not so important. Um, but I pray for the health, wellness, safety, and a full life for all beings in my sangha, in my family, in my community, every day. Um, and then the third part of my practice is that every day I really commit to and strive to pay attention. Paying attention to my thoughts, paying attention to my words, and paying attention to my actions. And paying attention fully to see um, what the source of those is. Are they reactions or thoughtful, kind, and wise, compassionate responses? Um, is, is, am I saying, thinking things, saying things, and doing things that are in line with my desire um, to lead a bodhisattva life, with my vow to live for the benefit of um, be all other beings and to be lived by all other beings. And so if I um, occasionally go to the place of fear and, or sarcasm or distance-making, um, am I really, and the, those can be thoughts, I can say things, or I can take actions, but in any of those three cases, if I'm doing that, and then coming here on a Saturday, having a conversation with you all, saying, well, you know, I've taken the bodhisattva vow and I vow to live um, for others, um, but I'm still afraid and distance-making. I'm still sarcastic occasionally. Um, I still have been known to have judgments about things important and not important um, that also make distance. And so really, it's kind of simple. All day long, in my practice, I start from the meditation in the morning, and then all day long I try to pay attention. Not judgmentally and self negative self-talk about me or my thoughts, words, and actions, but just to bring awareness to the capacity of those thoughts, words, and actions to actually be a benefit to anyone. Um, to be a benefit to anyone, and then therefore to be a benefit to me. So, so that's, um, that's, that's the practice that I do every day, and that allows me then, when I'm trying to do a little course correction or to adjust the way that I in interact with other people, um, um, it it's gives me that opportunity to check it out. And then there's this wonderful um, thing that we have here in, in uh, Soto Zen, which says we do not have to be perfect. Um, we just have to be diligent. We must arouse the possibility that we can live by vow and then take the first steps. So we must arouse the possibility, because I certainly had, have and had days, and many of you probably have, where somebody says, wow, here's this uh, Buddhist path, and here's this bodhisattva vow, and this way of life um, that we live um, in a social justice model, that we live in a model of compassion and wisdom and connection. And while that sounds great, I don't have the energy today. I don't have the skills today. I'm too exhausted, it's the wrong time of year, it's raining outside, whatever it is. I don't have the capacity to do that. And for many of us, we grew up thinking, if I can't do it perfectly, I'm not doing it. Because I don't want to be judged or bullied or talked about. And so I'm just not doing it. But that teaching, um, um, that you know, um, Dale Wright in his book about the Six Perfections says, when we awaken to the fact that we are both free and responsible to engage in enlightened self-transformation, um, we have this opportunity to arouse the thought of enlightenment. So we don't have to be perfect. 
we just are called on by the Buddha and the great teachers and our own teachers and abbots. We're called on to have a practice, to be clear about what that practice is. It can be as simple as my three points, or those of you who practice different ways than I do may have 10 or a journal full of them, or you know, years and years of teaching and working with your teacher and, and your students, if you have students, um, what your practice is. Mine's three, because that's about as many as I can remember at this point. Um, and I can check myself on, on those three, right? So, you know, meditation um, and, and taking a look during the course of the day at my thoughts, words, and deeds um, becomes really important to me. Um, not because I have to do it perfectly, but because I believed when the Buddha said, you must have a practice, um, and when my teachers say you must have a practice, that I must know what that practice is. And when I took the Bodhisattva vow, and when I retake it from time to time, um, I really am determined and delighted that my way is not the only way or even the best way, that this truly is a practice of connection. And um, the, in, in Mahayana and Soto Zen, we really have pledged our practice and our commitment to each other to that interconnection, um, that we all do this together, or probably it doesn't get done. Thank you. So we have a few minutes for, no we don't. Um, we could go upstairs, um, and we do have question and answer time usually, um, and, and I talked right up until 11 o'clock, so if anybody has a question here, we could do that. Otherwise, we can go upstairs and have tea and cookies and ask each other questions. Anybody have any thought or question or um, idea that, that would be of the benefit of everybody here? Because all of your thoughts and ideas are of the benefit to everybody here. Yeah. Maybe we're already taking this into account. I think we talked about having questions upstairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could do that. Great. Okay. So everybody take a deep breath and we'll um, we'll get ourselves upstairs. <laughs>